I'm sure you'll have heard this story before. It's a story of Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson. They go on a camping trip. They pitch their tent under the stars. After dinner and a bottle of wine, they lay down for the night and go to sleep. Some hours later, Watson wakes up and nudges his faithful friend Holmes. Holmes, look up at the sky and tell me what you see. Holmes replied, I see millions of stars. Watson asked, what does that tell you? Holmes replied, well, astronomically it tells me that there are millions of galaxies and potentially billions of planets. Astrologically, I observe that Saturn is in Leo. Horologically, I deduce that the time is approximately a quarter past three. Theologically, I can see that God is all-powerful and that we are small and insignificant. Meteorologically, I suspect that we will have a beautiful day tomorrow. What does it tell you, Watson? Watson was silent for a moment and then said, Holmes, you idiot, it means someone has stolen our tent. We human beings have a tremendous capacity for missing the point. And as we're going to look at this passage together this morning, we're going to see that the crowds missed the point, missed the meaning of the miracle, didn't see the significance of the sign, who it pointed them to Jesus, who he was and what he'd come into this world to do. Not only the crowds, but also his disciples. Now, there's something really unique about this sign. The feeding of the 5,000. That's the only sign that we're going to focus on this morning. We'll come back next week and look at Jesus walking on water. And, and do you know it? What's significant about this sign? It's the only sign that is mentioned apart from the resurrection of Jesus Christ in all four Gospels. Now just think about that for a moment. This sign has supreme significance along with the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. You see, if the death and resurrection tell us, they show us how Jesus saves us. Well, this sign shows us how well Jesus saves us. Because as we look at the significance of this sign, we're going to see that Jesus wanted all those who witnessed it to see that he is the one who can provide for their needs. Not just their physical need, but their greatest need, their spiritual need. Now just before we we dive in and look at verses 1 to to 15, it's also helpful to be aware of the fact that chapter 6 has so much in common with chapter 5. Remember how chapter 5 began? It began with Jesus performing his third sign, the healing of the crippled man. And then what happens is the Jewish leaders, they see this crippled man, the crippled man even healed, and he even tells them it was Jesus who did it. They see Jesus, and it's clear that they missed the meaning of the miracle. 
And so Jesus gives them this lengthy explanation as to who he is and what he'd come into the world to do. John chapter 6 opens exact same way. Jesus performs not just one sign, but two signs. Those who see it miss the meaning, fail to see the significance of the signs. And so Jesus will spend the rest of chapter 6 explaining who he is and what he came to do. This is actually the longest chapter in John's gospel and the longest chapter in the whole New Testament. That's not the only thing that chapters 5 and 6 have in common. Do you remember how chapter 5 ended? It ended with Jesus as he was defending himself before the, the, the Jewish leaders, saying to them, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, but you put your hope in Moses, but you don't actually believe Moses' words. At the end of chapter 6, we read this. If you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? And as we come to chapter 6, what we're going to see is that Jesus is going to show the Jewish people that he is the one who is greater than Moses. He fulfills Deuteronomy chapter 18. He's a prophet who has come in the form of Moses. As we look at this passage, we're going to see that Jesus is the prophet king greater than Moses who provides for his people. Next week we'll come back and we'll look at Jesus walking on water, the great I am who amazes his people. Now, the, the way I want us to just walk through this passage is just to take it in chunks. In verses 1 through 5a, John sets the scene for us. In verses 5b to verse 9, Jesus tests his disciples. In verses 10 through 13, Jesus performs a miracle. And then in verses 14 and 15, the crowds respond. So let's see. Let's picture in our mind's eye the scene. First thing John tells us is where this sign happened. It's interesting. Jesus is on the move again. And we find out that he's crossed the, the Sea of Galilee, also known as the Sea of Tiberias. And verse 3 tells us that Jesus and his disciples, they go up in a mountain and they sit down. That's all that John tells us. The other Gospels tell us that this mountain was nearby the town of Bethesda. Bethsaida. Incidentally, where Philip was from and some of the other disciples were from. So that's where we are. We're, We're on a mountain with the disciples and Jesus. But where did this sign happen? But when did this sign happen? Look at verse 4. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. We've seen this before. John links nearly many of the the, the significant moments in his gospel to the the, the feasts. And Passover feast was the most significant feast of the Jewish feasts. And John telling us this detail, it's hugely significant. He he wants us to color in the entire narrative. This, this, This informs all of this miracle. You see, at this point, the Jewish nation would be stopping to remember and to rehearse what God had done in the past. You know, Christmas and Easter time, many Christians throughout the world stopped to remember the coming of Christ into the world and then the death and resurrection of Jesus. 
Well, the Jewish nation took it so seriously. They, they, they came from all over to gather in Jerusalem to remember and to rehearse what God had done for them in the days of old. How he had provided them a leader in the form of Moses. How Moses had performed the ten signs of judgment upon the Egyptians, culminating in the Passover. How Moses had led the people out of Egypt, plundering them on their way out. How Moses led them through the Red Sea on the ground, and then the Red Seas came and killed the Egyptian army. And then how God provided for them as they wandered through the wilderness for 40 years with food from heaven. This is what God's people would be rehearsing. Remembering. Bear that in mind as we walk through this passage. The other thing that John wants us to know as he sets the scene is that Jesus is drawing an awful lot of attention. Back in chapter 5, it was attention from the Jewish leaders. Here in chapter 6, it's attention from the Jewish population. Look at verse 2. Why were they drawn to Jesus? Because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Now, we've been studying through John's gospel. People who follow Jesus because of the signs, is that a good thing or a bad thing? They follow him because he's a miracle man. They say they believe, but Jesus does not believe in them because Jesus knows what is in them. So see when we read here in verse 2 that they, they saw the signs he was doing in the sick and they followed him, this sets the tone for the crowd's response. Think they believe in him, but they don't really believe in him. And so there's the scene. It's set. It's Passover time. Jesus is with his disciples. They're sitting on a mountain. Now look at verse 5a. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him. Their, their quiet time, their retreat is interrupted with the hordes of people eager for another miracle from Jesus. Jesus knew exactly what they needed. Jesus knew this was the perfect opportunity for him to provide for this people what they needed. This is the perfect opportunity for Jesus to showcase to them in a sign who he was and what he had come to do. That's not the only reason Jesus did this sign. Look look, look at verse 5b. We're given further insight here that Jesus performed this sign because he had a purpose in mind for his disciples. Look at verse 5b. Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that the people may eat? Now, as you hear that question, have you heard that before? Well, if you, if you know the Old Testament, and if you know the story of Exodus, you have. Because following the Exodus, when God's people are wandering through the wilderness, Moses asks the same question, where am I to get food for all the people to eat? The burning of God's people is who can supply food for the crowds? Jesus here asks the same question and he asks it of Philip. And the question is, why does he ask Philip? Well, remember what he just said, that, that, that they're in a mountain that's nearby Philip's hometown. So all the commentators say, 
It's no doubt that Jesus asked Philip because Philip would know the whereabouts of the nearest Tesco Extra, or the first century equivalent. And so Philip could point them in the right direction. But I don't think that's the reason at all. It might form a small part of it. Verse 6 tells us why Jesus asked Philip the question. Jesus said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Jesus asked this question as a test. And again, if you know the Exodus, if you remember why God fed his people with manna from heaven, it was a test. Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 2. You shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you, testing you to know what is in your heart. God's in the business of testing his people, testing you and I to know what is in our hearts. As I said, part of the The main purpose of this sign was that Jesus is the one who can provide for our needs, both physical and spiritual. So Jesus asked this question, where are we to to get food for all these people? And Philip looks at the crowd and the cogs of his mind start turning. And he starts doing calculations as to how much it would cost them if they were to even attempt to feed this crowd. And he says, 200 denarii worth of bread that's eight months wages would not even be enough for them to get a little now philip's response is hugely revealing he says jesus we 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 don't have the kind of money to feed a crowd this size even if we were to empty the benevolent fund jesus and we were to clear out every shelf from the local supermarket we would not have enough to give people just a little There's just no way this is going to happen. What does this reveal? It reveals that Philip's missed the point. Philip was there in Cana of Galilee when Jesus turned those huge jar pots brimming full of water into wine miraculously. Philip saw the sign. He beheld the glory of Jesus. He saw him heal the royal official's son with a word. He saw him heal the man who lay crippled 38 years. Philip's response in this moment should have been, Jesus, I don't know how we can feed them, but I know you can feed them. That's not what's in his heart. He should have turned his eyes away from the crowds and he should have turned his eyes immediately to Jesus. When you face dilemmas in life, to who do you turn your gaze? You know, we prayed earlier in the service, give us this day our daily bread. Who do you depend on to provide for your daily needs? Well, it's at this point that Andrew pipes up. 
It seems that Andrew had gone off canvassing among the crowd to see if anyone had any food. And during his search, he's located a little boy carrying around his pack lunch, five barley loaves and two small fish. And Andrew analyzes, analyzes the scenario, and his conclusion is, we might as well be trying to feed an army with a few grains of rice. It's not enough to feed a crowd this size. And when we stand back from this scene, we, we get a glimpse into the hearts of the disciples. And may I suggest we get a glimpse into our own hearts? Because instead of turning to Jesus, isn't it so tempting for us to walk not by faith, but to walk by sight? Rather than looking for Jesus to to provide, the disciples look to themselves. We don't have enough money to fix a problem. We don't have enough food to solve the situation. See the problem? There's no faith. They don't understand who Jesus is. They don't appreciate that Jesus is the one who can solve this problem. And, and this is application for, for all of us here. If you've been a Christian for a week or if you've been a Christian for five decades, none of us here fully understand or appreciate who Jesus is. In fact, one of the problems is, in the Christian life is that we have this spiritual amnesia where we keep on forgetting just how glorious he is, how good he is. Like, think about this, right? Jesus has provided all that is necessary for you to be in right relationship with God. Jesus has performed the greatest miracle bringing you from death to life. You were once blind, now you see He's done that in your life and you would expect because you've experienced salvation that you would daily depend upon him. Daily trust in him. But do you? Do I? And again, if you remember the story of the Exodus, there's such a striking similarity. God's people saved from Egypt. They've plundered the Egyptians. Their enemies are destroyed. They're in the wilderness and they start complaining and grumbling. Where are we going to get food? I wish we were back in Egypt. Or there we had pots of meat and bread. Here's Philip and Andrew. With their very own eyes, they've seen Jesus do the miraculous. And yet in this moment, they're blind to who he is. Jesus was testing them. And by the way, they failed the test. So here's Jesus. He lifts up his eyes. This huge crowd comes towards him. Where are we going to get food to feed them? Jesus wants to show them he is the one who alone can provide for their needs. He delights to provide for his people. And can I just say as a point of pastoral application, some of us are struggling. Some of us here have great needs. Perhaps are struggling with sin. Habitual sin. Just can't break it. 
Do you think he's got enough grace and mercy for you? He does. Do you think he's got the power and the Holy Spirit who indwells you to help you to say no to temptation as it greets you day in, day out? Be sure of it. He does. Some of you are struggling with life, overwhelmed perhaps by the circumstances of your life. Maybe it's a family situation. Maybe it's a work situation. Do you think he's got what you need? He does. Great is his faithfulness. All that I have needed, his hand can provide and has provided. Following the test, the situation calls for Jesus to perform his miracle. And just incidentally, we're in the middle of nowhere. Where there's no nearby shop. This should have reminded the people as they were thinking about the Passover to remember their history and to know that the only one who can provide is God. And the one they're with is God. Now, now, I grew up with this story indelibly in my, in my mind, in my, in my life. Cause I'm named Andrew after Andrew here. And Andrew is got a great gift. He he brings people to Jesus. He brought his brother, Peter, to Jesus. We found the Messiah. And now he brings this little boy to Jesus. And isn't it interesting that Peter would be one of the most significant leaders that the church ever knew in the first, in its early years. And now he brings a little boy who we'll never forget. And who played a key role in redemptive history. This little boy with his packed lunch. Don't you just love this, right? Jesus who who created this world out of nothing, in this instance doesn't choose to do a miracle from nothing. He takes this little boy's packed lunch and he decides to do something glorious with it. And I can still remember the point that my mum would say about this little boy that Andrew brought to Jesus. Jesus took his nothing and he made something glorious. And see if you understand the gospel, if you're one of God's people, Jesus takes the little fragments of your life and he makes something out of them. Oh, pastorally, you need to know your timid words that you try and speak to a friend about Jesus, Jesus takes them and he uses them. Your pennies that you give to the church, he takes your pennies and he uses them. Your reluctant service, in his gracious power, he takes it and he uses it for his glory. The one who's incredible here is not the little boy, it's Jesus. But what is incredible is is that he uses a little boy's lunch. And what is incredible for you and I is that Jesus uses you and I in his redemptive purposes for this world. As we look at how Jesus performed this miracle, look at what he said, verse 10. He said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Isn't that a shame that we call this the feeding of the 5,000? Matthew, in his account, tells us that there were women and children. 
This is the feeding of the thousands. Don Carson speculates there could be between 6,000 to 20,000, perhaps even 30,000. And and, and do you see the imagery? He makes them sit down in the green grass. What does that remind you of? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. For what purpose? To feed us. Feed our souls. Read verse 11. Jesus then took the loaves and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. Some people want to say, how did Jesus perform this miracle? Well, this is what he did. Handful by handful, Jesus creates new food. And he just multiplies the loaves and the fishes. That's all we know. Handful by handful. Now I suspect as the disciples, right, who, who just a moment ago were saying, Jesus, we don't know how we can feed them. It's impossible. When Jesus said to them, get everyone to sit down, they must have been scratching their heads. Jesus, why are we inviting people to, to ready themselves as if they're going to dine? And then Jesus takes the little boy's packed lunch and handful by handful he hands them out to them. Now feed them. Now distribute them as much as they want. And once again, what are they seeing? They're beholding the glory of their God. He's greater than Moses. Moses needed God to send manna from heaven. Jesus takes food and he multiplies it. And then just to drive home the point to those who were slow to believe, Jesus says in verse 12, and when they'd eaten their fill, when they were full, when they were satisfied, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. And if you know the story of the Exodus and God feeding his people with manna, Exodus 16 verse 18 says, when they gathered the manna, they had as much as they could eat. God always provides extravagantly for his people. And notice that little phrase, that nothing may be lost. That's one of the most glorious gospel phrases that is used in John chapter 6. John will use it, Jesus will use it in in, in verse 39. Not to speak of bread, but to speak of his people, that none of them may be lost. What we're meant to see here is that Jesus is the one who saves and he saves to the uttermost. He provides all that is needed and all that is necessary for salvation. Remember, this is a sign. It's supposed to point people to who he is. He's the one greater than Moses. Later on in this chapter, Jesus will say, I am the bread of life. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And just to drive home again for those who were slow to believe his disciples, notice that they gathered up 12 baskets. And commentators will go two ways with this. They'll say 12 baskets, 12 tribes of Israel. God's salvation is sufficient for all of his people. And that's true. But I also think 12 baskets because 12 disciples had just been tested. It's not enough, they said. They come back and they have to say, Jesus, there was more than enough. We've gathered it in. 
Do you see what the sign is pointing us to? Jesus is the all-sufficient Savior who provides for his people's needs. And as we draw this to a close, look at the crowd's response. When the people saw this sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Now, now they see it. They see it. They get it. They make the connection. This is the prophet. This is the one of whom Deuteronomy chapter 18 spoke of. This is the greater than Moses. They're a bit like Sherlock Holmes. They see, but they don't really see. Because what they see is they see one who is just a means to their own ends. They don't see Jesus as who he is, the prophet king, come to save them from their sins. They think Jesus is this national king who they can take by power and make king. And they think he's going to overthrow the Romans. And if he can provide food, well, what a glorious king he will be. He can provide for his people's every need. However, Jesus, Jesus perceiving that that's exactly what they were going to do, do you know what he does? He evades them. He leaves them. Because they've missed the meaning. They failed to see the true significance of the sign. They've drawn the wrong conclusion. He had come as the eternal king to save them from their sin, to provide for their greatest need. To deliver them not from physical bondage and slavery to the Romans. But to deliver them from their spiritual bondage. From sin. Jesus came so that their hearts could be truly satisfied. Not just for a a moment, just for a fleeting moment. But so that their hearts could be satisfied forever. Here's Jesus, and in this sign, he opens a window to his glory so that all of us can see him and what he's come to do. And Jesus wants us to see that in him, he is better. He is more glorious than any king we could ever dream of. Because he is the savior who will set his people free, who will provide for their every need, who will lead them and guide them at every turn. And you know the appropriate response to this Savior is to live with faith in him. That was the problem. Even in this circumstance, his disciples didn't have faith in him. So here's the test. How are you going to respond? How do you respond to who Jesus is? By faith. And you're a believer. This is the test. Not just for now, but for every day and every moment. And so our prayer's got to be, Jesus, open my eyes wide to your glory. Help me see that you provide for all of my needs and my greatest need. And Jesus, help me today and tomorrow to live trusting in you. 
All that I need, you can provide. Let's pray. God, we would confess that we are guilty of having seen, of having experienced, of having tasted salvation, and we are guilty failing in our lives to live in dependence upon you and trusting in you. God, as you examine our hearts this morning with the searchlight of your spirit, there's so many instances where you'll see in the past week where we have trusted in self instead of trusting in our Savior. We pray you'd have mercy upon us. God, you know our great needs this morning. You know, each one of us in this room, you've numbered our hairs on our head. You know us better than we know ourselves. We want to bring to you our needs and pray that you would provide for us what we need. God, thank you that you do all things for your own glory's sake. And so we pray that even in meeting our need, you would get the glory that our lives would showcase that we are those who live in complete and utter dependence upon you. And God, we are humbled at the thought that you take our little things, our nothings, and you make out of them something. And so we pray that you would multiply the work of our hands and that you would use it for your kingdom's purposes for now and forevermore. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.